Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the podcast hosts. I interview guests about art and architecture books published by Yale University Press. And I'm very excited about today's conversation with Mark Palazzotti. Mark is a publisher, a translator, and an author. He is the publisher and editor-in-chief at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where he's responsible for shepherding through to publication the museum's beautiful, intelligent, often award-winning exhibition catalogs, which, as an aside, Yale University Press is proud to distribute. He's the translator of dozens of books from their original French by such writers as Gustave Flaubert, Marguerite Duras, André Breton, and Patrick Modiano. As an aside, the eight Patrick Modiano books that Yale University Press has published were translated by Mark Palazzotti. And he's the author in his own right of numerous books, including Revolution of the Mind, The Life of André Breton, Sympathy for the Traitor, a Translation Manifesto, and most recently, the brand new Why Surrealism Matters. And this is what Mark has consented to talk to me about today. I'll read just two of the many advance endorsements we've received for the book. Lucy Sant says, Mark Palazzotti's concise introduction to surrealism is the clearest, richest, most unflinching, and most wide-ranging survey of the movement I have ever read. And in the words of Sasha Frere-Jones, Palazzotti knows that there is no surrealism— but instead a host of surrealisms born anew every generation. He also knows the history of surrealism, original recipe, as well as anyone, and knows that its mistakes and misfires are worth talking about. This book is worth reading, especially for those who assume they already know the answer. Mark, thanks so much for your time today and for talking about why surrealism matters. Jess, well, thanks so much for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here, and I look forward to the conversation. So <clears throat> let's start with this. Throughout the book, you make the case that surrealism is best defined less by a specific group of people in France in the 1920s and their manifestos, paintings, and pieces of automatic writing than by a set of intangibles. You write about its spirit, its intent, about uh, its approach to art as a means rather than an end. Would you talk about the importance of this distinction and also about what characterizes the spirit of surrealism? Absolutely. Um, so I think what characterizes the spirit, uh, there are two things in particular that characterize it for me. One is this constant spirit of revolt, of rebellion, um, coupled with a fierce independence of mind and a refusal uh, of accepted thinking or of the status quo. And this, even when it costs the surrealist influence or allies or close friendships, and I'll come back to this later on. The second thing is a belief in the power of marvels, uh, of thrills, uh, but here and now in the world. Uh, so in other words, uh, while that might seem a little bit frivolous, uh, it actually was a lot deeper than that. It was a desire on their part to, to revivify life, to recreate a sense of wonder, um, the kind of wonder and endless curiosity that a child might feel in discovering the world, for example, or the thrill of dreams. Uh, and what they were trying to combat was what they saw as the, the flatness of daily life in Western Europe. Um, now, you know, the, the, the brain deadening aspect of, of life in the 1920s and the 1930s, and to try to give it a, a sense of higher purpose through this recreation and through this, this re, uh, rediscovery of a sense of wonder. Now, how this manifests 
is not only in writing, but also in daily life. Um, you know, it could be found in creating art, certainly, but it could also be found in studying dreams. It could be found in uh, studying so-called mental illness or, you know, altered mental states. Um, so one of the things I really wanted to get away from in this book was the notion, the very common notion, especially in this country, that surrealism is an art movement um, or even a literary movement. Surrealism was really about how to live in the world. Uh, you know, it was not about the the art that they produced or the writing that they produced, which is why so much of that art can seem very different in style. A lot of it seems like it has nothing to do with each other. You know, you say, well, why why is this particular painting surrealist? Well, it was about that spirit that you mentioned, uh, not about a style. In the first manifesto, Breton defined surrealism partly as being able to solve all the principal problems of life. Now. Obviously, that was hyperbolic, and he was trying to make a, a manifesto point and, and uh, get attention for his new movement. But it's also a very important point because it's the grounds on which we can judge surrealism's success and failure. Uh, so on the one hand, you could say, well, surrealism didn't solve all the problems of life. Obviously, they're still here. The desire to, to, to seek out marvels in the, daily, in, in, in the world might not seem very relevant to someone who's struggling with poverty or someone who's trying to survive in a war zone. And this is a criticism that was often leveled at them, and, and rightly so. But for many of us in our present society, and this is as true in 2020 as it was in 1920, maybe even more so, you know, those of us who were faced with uh, the daily uh, mental oppression of social and political systems that are intended to keep us in our place or keep us pacified or keep us, you know, faux entertained uh, to an extent that we don't even realize, well, that's where the surrealist message truly becomes resonant. Uh, you know, and whether it's conveyed through art or literature or film or just being in the world, uh, it, it provides a different lens through which to view the world. And I think that's really what the importance is. Criticisms aside, their interest was in some ways informed by um, horrors of early 20th century, by World War I and by the rise of totalitarian regimes in Europe um, and their holistic approach to another way of going about it was obviously, what, what they thought would work. Absolutely. I mean, surrealism famously was inspired by their engagement and their horror at the First World War. Uh, many of them had served in the war or um, had been involved in it in some way or other, and they held directly responsible the centuries of what they saw as Greco-Latin logic uh, that had brought about the sort of the rationalist society in which they lived as being um, as being directly responsible for the kind of situation and the kind of society that led to that sort of war, that sort of butchery, that sort of horror. And so their feeling was, you know, reject all of that and start anew, start afresh and try to find something else, something that's better, something that will not lead to that. A core activity for many of the people involved with the movement was something called automatic writing, um, they, what they used to inspire wonder and combat the flatness. Uh, you suggest in the book, though, that not only can people today not engage in automatic writing the way the Surrealists did, but that we can't even really understand what the Surrealists were trying to convey with theirs. Um, you mind explaining a little bit about automatic writing and also the reason that you say we don't really have access to it anymore? Sure. So automatic writing was not invented by the Surrealists. It had been around for centuries, uh, practiced in one way or another, uh, either as a, a tool to help you write or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, Breton, who was a, uh, he was a medical intern during the war. He'd been a medical student before the World War I broke out. 
And he was assigned at one point to um, a psychiatric center where he was involved in treating what used to be called shell shock patients, uh, post-traumatic stress. And uh, automatic writing was one of the, or automatic speech was one of the techniques that was used. Um, and of course, Breton really was not cut out to be a doctor. He was cut out to be a writer. So what really impressed him was not so much the therapeutic value of automatic writing, but the imagery, the poetic imagery, uh, which he you know, excitedly wrote to his friends. This is the most amazing imagery I've ever heard. No poetry can touch this. But what really, really appealed to him and what really got to him was this was a doorway to the unconscious. This was a doorway to one's inner being. And so automatic writing at the very beginning of surrealism as it began to be codified even before it was codified as a movement um the first supposedly the real first surrealist text uh, the magnetic fields was written in 1919 which was five years before the surrealist manifesto and the official beginning of surrealism um and it continued for a number of years to be one of their primary activities if i say that it's difficult for us to engage in it today it's really for two reasons. I mean, of course, anyone can engage in automatic writing. People do it all the time. But unlike the surrealists at the time, first of all, we're very aware of it. Um, you know, they were creating a new use for automatic writing and they were approaching it in a, in a, in a new way. We now have the weight of history. It's hard for us to have the same freedom that they did uh, without being, you know, referential or, or reverential, uh, which is, you know, really why so much of it today sounds awful if you try doing it. And, and I've tried it, you know, of course. And it's very hard to stay away from writing about, you know, Paris in the 1920s. It just kind of leads you there because you're, you have the, the weight of the surrealist history kind of sitting on your shoulders. The other thing about it that makes it difficult for us is that the surrealists were working from a shared canon uh, of uh, educational references. Uh, you know, education was very standardized at the time. And even though they decried that, um, they also used those references um, you know, to give themselves a, a sort of a shared corpus. So if they make, you know, jibes about or pastiche someone or, or you know, sort of make a pun on, on some literary or, or, or reference, uh, for example, they pretty much knew that other people would understand it and they would get the humor of it. You know, today you sort of have to footnote all of that to, to really bring out what they were getting at. Uh, and, and you just lose the, you lose the verb. So, you know, on the one hand, I would say The Magnetic Fields is still a book definitely worth reading. It's wonderful. But do we still get it the same way that they did back in 1920? I'm not so sure. Um, you know, our references today have become too disparate. And so if we try, you know, if, if I today in, in 2023 try to write automatically, I've got my own point of view, but I'm not sure how much of it is going to come through to someone else because we don't have the same shared set of references. It becomes rather solipsistic. Mm. Um, well, it's talk a little more about André Breton. You wrote a biography of him um, that was published originally nearly 30 years ago. And you've also worked in museums over the last three decades and participated in the ongoing scholarship on an approach to surrealism. Has your perspective on Breton, on surrealism more generally, changed over that time? And if so, how? I would say that it's deepened more than fundamentally changed. Um, I think, to me, the real change was during the writing of the um, of the biography, where I came to appreciate much more uh, deeply what he was trying to do. 
the caricature of Breton, the common the common notion for a lot of people is, is this sort of you know autocrat of the cafe table uh, who lorded it over his his followers and imposed his tastes and you know if you were if you dis- if you dared disagree you were you were drummed out. Now that's not entirely false. Uh, he could be fairly autocratic in some ways, but he was a lot more open than one generally gives him credit for. Uh, and what he was trying to set afoot and what he managed to maintain for nearly 50 years was really a, a, an effort at liberation, as I, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, an effort of trying to get beyond what he and his close friends saw as, as the real limitations of the society they were living in and to try to reinvent life in a way that would be fundamentally different and fundamentally better. Um, so in that regard, I think my, you know, my attitude, if anything, as I said, has, has deepened rather than changed. What did change for me in my view of surrealism was having to rethink not so much the stories and what happened, but the why. Uh, you know, when you talk about, when you ask a question, why does surrealism matter? You know, why surrealism matters? Well, that's a challenge. Uh, you know, you need to figure out why that is, does it, in fact? Um, and so I... I will say that it was much more of a personal journey um, that I undertook writing this book uh, than I expected it to be. Uh, you know, I thought I thought I had more of it figured out. I'm delighted that that happened uh, because there was again the sense of sort of marvel and discovery, which is which is very much a part of the surrealist program. But I was surprised by the extent to which I had to take all of my own personal received notions of what surrealism was, my own personal understanding of those stories, and really just take them apart and rethink them from scratch. Do you think that Breton appreciated the irony of being involved in the founding of a movement based in part on refusal of accepted thinking and yet being in some ways autocratic about the movement's tenets? It's a really good question. The way that I would approach that, the way that I would answer that is to say that he was probably the least surrealist of the surrealists um, in terms of the way he lived. He had a very regular lifestyle. He lived at the same address from you know 1920 to the year he died, which was 1966. I think he moved like one apartment a floor down, and that was about it. Uh, you know, he had pretty. He wasn't a nightlife person. He had you know very regular habits. Uh, uh, you know, you'd look at this person and think he's more a, of an office worker than a surrealist. Whereas a lot of the people who were involved in the movement were, in fact, much more. You know, what we would. Consider the you know the the wacky surrealist lifestyle, sometimes involving narcotics, sometimes involving late nights, sometimes involving you know all kinds of other eccentric behavior. Breton wasn't that, but at the same time, his clarity of mind and his ability to articulate the tenets of surrealism, even as they evolved, and to sort of keep following that and to make it exciting was a large part of what kept that movement together. And the other part was his personal charisma. Uh, you know, for, for all of the difficulty of his personality, he also was someone who was remarkably magnetic uh, and really could make you feel like you were, you know, the cliche, you feel like you're the only person in the world when you're talking to him. He really had a talent for that. And so people would get just passionately attracted to him, involved with him, you know, men and women. Uh, you know, he really drew them very close to him. And that sort of magnetic center is, I think, what let surrealism continue as an organized movement in France uh, for, you know, over 40 years. Uh, it, would have, it would have just sprung apart without it. Mm-hmm. And so though he is 
you know, the person around whom many of the surrealists world. You seem to have been careful in your book not to position Breton as the main character. Um, who were some of the other people that you were eager to feature and why? Yeah, I mean, you know, he he certainly does attract a lot of the the attention. Uh, I mean, he gets the lion's share of attention in most discussions of surrealism. Um, and, you know, as I said, he was the primary theorist. He often said it best. Uh, he had that personal magnetism in person and on paper, by the way. But he, you know, he wasn't the only one. I wanted to also uh, bring forward some of the other surrealists, either the well-known ones like, uh, you know, Eluard and his early anti-colonialism or, um, you know, or even someone like Dali, who, you know, although he was drummed out of the movement fairly early on, made some very, very crucial contributions to, to the history of it. But there were also a number of lesser known figures that I, I wanted to bring forward as well. Um, you know, one of them was uh, this fellow Jacques Vacher, who was a very important precursor and the originator of many of the attitudes that continued on through the entire history of surrealism. Uh, there was René Crevel, who uh, brought the um, uh, very early experiments in, in sleeping trances to the group uh, and uh, also took issue with many of the group's attitudes. Uh, especially about sexuality. And one of the things that, that is a, a real paradox about Crevel was that he was openly gay in a movement that, by and large, did not really tolerate um, homosexuality. Uh, another another person was Claude Cain, uh, who uh, was an early uh, exemplar of gender fluidity. She, too, was someone who managed to find her place in the movement and make very important um, uh, contributions, especially in her photography, uh, that were not, you know, that were sort of outside the the surrealist um, uh, mainstream, if you can call it that. Um, you know, people like Joyce Mansour, who was a very important poet, who's now only beginning to get attention, the attention she deserves, um, and the and the recognition. Uh, there was Ted Jones, uh, a, a black um, one of the one of the uh, few black members of of surrealism uh, who started in the 1960s, uh, got into in touch with them, who brought accents of jazz and black power to the movement, uh, which was very important current that happened uh, from the mid-60s on. Aimé and Suzanne Césaire, uh, the, the Martinican surrealists, uh, whom Breton met when he was in Martinique uh, on his way to the United States during the war, who really embraced the spirit of revolt in surrealism and applied it to their anti-colonial struggle. Um, you know, so and that, them and many others. Uh, you know, the thing to remember about surrealism is that it was a collective. And although Breton was and remains a primary figure, he wasn't by any stretch alone. It was a collective in its very conception and in its in its very DNA. You can't really understand what the surrealists were doing, their actions and their and their manifestations, without understanding that sort of group dynamic. You write um, in a lovely way in the book about some of the areas where it does get difficult to defend the surrealists. One of them being the role of women in the movement. Um, do you think that, you know, despite all of the underpinnings of the movement, they suffered from a sexist attitude as much or more than the rest of society? Do you feel like it's worth trying to defend the surrealists in this area? I think it's worth complexifying the the debate. You know, there have been, I mean, the role of women in the movement is is a topic of unending debate in surrealist studies. Um, and there have been many contradictory perspectives. You know, some feel, some men and women feel that it was a great liberation. Others, um, to, to quote uh, Leonora Carrington, who was once talking to me about it, that it was, as she put it, another bullshit role for women. 
Um, I've tried to take both views into account in the book. Uh, tried not to be partisan, but really try to sort of lay out what the different elements are, uh, evaluate the good and the bad. Um, you know, I'm aware, honestly, that writing as a man of a certain generation, it's difficult for me to fully appreciate all of the dynamics that were that were going on, um, which is one reason that I tried as much as possible to let the women speak in their own words about this whenever I could get their points of view and the different points of view to try to balance them and, and set them next to each other, juxtapose them. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, indeed, there were some who felt very marginalized. Uh, the British surrealist uh, Ethel Colquhoun, for example, um, was disbarred from the uh, from the London group because she was interested in witchcraft. And the men felt that that was just inappropriate, even though witchcraft is yet another manifestation of the irrational that supposedly they were all, you know, so intent on exploring. You know, at the same time, uh, there were figures such as Merritt Oppenheim and Dorothea Tanning and even Carrington herself, uh, to some extent, who felt that they had been empowered uh, by their association with the with the movement, um, you know, even while recognizing its limitations, and certainly there were limitations. So, you know, for example, Dorothea Tanning, I think, is a good example of this, because on the one hand, she's quoted as saying uh, that the place of women in surrealism was no different than her place in bourgeois society in general, which was a, you know, rather damning statement. But she also recognized that being part of that movement and her association with it gave her opportunities that she wouldn't have had you know, growing up in Galesburg, Illinois, um, you know, so so it was a sort of a two-edged sword. I think principles of surrealism, when they could be applied, were in fact could be very liberating for for men and women, um, and that a number of women were able to take some of those principles, and sometimes it meant moving away from the group itself and sort of you know practicing on their own, but taking the lessons that they had learned and really using that to their own personal to their own personal benefit. Um, you know, others just sort of walked away in disgust and said, this is just, you know, this is just a bunch of male chauvinists and, and you're really no different from anybody outside in the street. Uh, so, you know, it's a, it's a complex, it's a complex topic. Um, I think ultimately the intentions were good. I think that the surrealists were also unfortunately subject to the prejudices of their time. Um, you know, I, I quote uh, some of the conversations from these uh, so-called investigations on sexuality, which they held in the late 20s and early 30s. And I mean, some of them just make you cringe, uh, mm -hmm. you know, when you read these things. Even at the time, they probably made people cringe. In fact, even at the time, not all the surrealists were were endorsing them. You know, some of them would sort of say, hey, that's, you know, it's nonsense. Um, but, you know, that said, I think that their interest in sexuality and their interest in gender roles, even if it was limited by some of the prejudices that they definitely had, also helped pave the way for a revolution in attitudes toward sexuality and gender roles, even if the surrealists themselves, if many of them couldn't actually share in those in that revolution. That's mm. how I put it. Right. One interesting aspect, too, uh, of surrealism was their insistence on an integration of the aesthetic work that they produced with their moral and even political convictions. Um, they had an appreciation for the ideas of the communist left, but had a hard time establishing a happy relationship with the Communist Party. You devote a, a chapter in the book, the chapter is titled Disruption, to, to that relationship. Would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, one of, one of Breton's most famous statements brings together Marx's 
dictum transformed the world and Rambo's statement changed life. And he says, you know, those two watchwords are just one for us, you know, the same thing. So, you know, surrealism was both a revolution of the world and a revolution of the mind. And they were attracted by the stated goals of communism. They, they, you know, the communist party was founded in France in 1920 and they were, they, they immediately went to check it out and see what was going on. Although it wasn't for until about five years later that they became more involved in it. Um, you know, what they saw in the goals of communism was a liberation of humankind, uh, an overthrow of capitalism, um, you know, which again, they saw as being the sort of brain deadening, uh, you know, the tyranny of logic and the, and the, and the cradle of all the ills of society, including, as you've mentioned, first world war. But to them, the, the, the chains that they wanted to break were especially mental chains. Um, you know, and they felt that you cannot have a successful revolution without first liberating the mind. They were less interested in economic chains. Um, and this is where they and the communists were fundamentally talking at cross purposes because for the communists, economic conditions came first. Uh, you know, the, the, the liberation of the workers and, and the betterment of their lot was goal number one. And, you know, attuning them to the finer points of, of uh, you know, automatic writing uh, and avant-garde literature came second. And this is where the two of them just could not understand each other because, you know, and, and there is, there is uh, you know, as I, as I try to, to point out in the book and I try to, to um, discuss, I think that there are, there's validity to both sides of the argument. You know, if you are living in a world where people are having a hard time making ends meet, putting food on the table, caring for a family and being oppressed by your employer, by the, you know, capitalist system, uh, you know, working on a, on a, on a, uh, a production line, uh, you know, a lot of what the surrealists were saying can seem to be pretty beside the point. On the other hand, if you take it from the surrealist side, their feeling was if you have that revolution and all you're looking at are working conditions and wage earning, you just end up recreating the same system that you're trying to overthrow by slightly different names and you end up in exactly the same place. And I think that there's a validity to that as well. Now, it might not have been exactly the way that they prescribed it, but the notion of really changing how people think and how people engage in the world as a first condition, a primary condition to having any sort of successful revolution is a point of view worth worth um, exploring. I would, I would put it that way. Um, you know, it's also true that the surrealists, they were not politicians. Uh, they didn't have any real political program. They did get involved in, you know, various political initiatives, but as intellectuals, uh, they really saw their role in, in, in communism, in the Communist Party, in their various overtures as being the sort of presiding intellectuals and theoreticians of the party, which, of course, the communists had zero interest in, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, you know, so that too was a, a snub that they were constantly, you know, a rebuff that they were constantly weathering and, they, and, and you know, and just made them all the angrier and, and made the communists all the angrier because these miserable bourgeois kids kept coming back and bothering them. Um, you know, there was, there was a certain idealism and a romance to their notion of communism, uh, you know, which, which kind of ignored the reality and for a number of years, ignore the reality of, you know, just what was really going on, for example, in the Soviet Union. Now, they started getting a taste of it in the early 1930s um, when uh, uh, Aragon, who was one of the surrealists, was invited to this um, literary conference in, in, um, in what's now Ukraine. Uh, and 
thought he was making all these wonderful strides and, you know, sort of putting forth the surrealist point of view and everybody was agreeing with him. And then as he was about to get on the plane to come back home, he was handed a document basically saying, sign this. And it repudiated all of the surrealist points of view. It repudiated, you know, Breton's manifesto or repudiated Freud, who was another major influence. And it was basically like you either signed this document or basically everything you've said here is just going to get thrown into the trash. And so he did. Um, and then he went back and spent the next two years in Paris trying to sort of deny that he'd signed it. And it eventually led to this huge blow up. Um, you know, several years later, you have the the so-called Moscow trials uh, in, in, in Russia, uh, you know, from 36 to 38, where it became very clear that Stalin was much more interested in, in eliminating anyone who could be a political threat than in bettering the condition of the Soviet people. Uh, at least that, that's sort of how it, how it came through. Um, and so, you know, this is, this goes back to what I was talking about before about the independence of mind is that, you know, even though Breton was trying, had, had been trying very hard to make common cause, he and a number of the other surrealists to make common cause with the communist party, this was the point at which he said, like, you know, I can't endorse this anymore. And he broke. And he was one of the few left-leaning intellectuals, you know, seriously leftist intellectuals in France to do that at the time. A lot of a lot of the others, including a number of surrealists who ended up leaving surrealism for the Communist Party, said, "Well, you know, if that's if that's what we have to accept in order to work with the communists, then we'll just accept it." Um, so I do give him credit for that. You know, it was not an easy choice to make. It cost him a lot of influence. It cost him some of his closest friends. Uh, it really dealt a blow to the status of surrealism uh, and, uh, you know, as, a, as an entity uh, in, in the intellectual circles. Uh, but nonetheless, he felt that this was something that had to happen and, uh, you know, and, and was something that he could not abide. Uh, and it really kind of helped marginalize the surrealists in the intellectual in the intellectual world, um, you know, not only in the 30s, but then even more so after the war, when um, when the Stalinists were very very um, powerful in France. He understood the common ground and the spirit of revolt and anti-capitalism and whatnot, but that in practice it was it was kind a completely of a different relationship. Thing. A complete yeah, uh, yeah. And you know, and part of it too was that, to be honest, they really had no idea what what politics or what communism was about. They had this. Breton had been. Um, particularly attracted to it by Trotsky's biography of Lenin, which came out in 1925. And he read it and he was absolutely enthralled and he got all the others to read it and, you know, basically sort of engineered the surrealist turn from automatic writing and, you know, and, and all of that to politics uh, in the mid 1920s. And some fundamentally disagreed and, you know, and left, uh, but, but others really got into it whole hog. And, um, you know, but what he was really responding to, and he wrote a review of the book where it becomes very clear is the fact that Trotsky was just a damn good stylist. You know, he was a good writer and Breton, the writer could only respond you know, could could couldn't help but respond to 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 the magnificence of his style uh, and the persuasiveness of his style. He had no idea of what it really meant to be, you know, in those conference rooms hashing out policy. Uh, he wasn't interested, you know. And and for the communists, the real members of the party, that's what it was about. It was, you know, it was about policy. It was about conditions. It was about you know getting better wages. It was it was you know things that were extremely important. But the surrealists did not care about that. Right. Interesting, too, to think about this in the context of understanding surrealism, as you said earlier, as not just an art movement or a literary movement, but a movement where there was a sense of its participants being practitioners of ideas beyond 
their art and mm-hmm. what that means in real life, you know, if they're not going to be involved in a political movement becomes a little diffuse. Yeah. I mean, you are touching on one of the trickiest questions of surrealism there, uh, which is the relationship between art and life, basically. I mean, it's not just surrealism. It's, you know, it's, it's a it's a question that obtains still today. Uh, and very early on, even before surrealism was officially codified, Breton had written in an essay, he said, uh, poetry emanates more from the lives of human beings than from what they have written. In other words, who you are is much more important than what you do. And, you know, on the one hand, this entails a certain moral responsibility, which I think is laudable, but it also brushes up very closely to what, you know, what today we would call identity politics or so-called cancel culture. Um, and there, you know, honestly speaking, I think it becomes, it, it, it flirts with being rather reductive um, and, you know, and, and even worse, antithetical to true critical thought. Um, you know, as I said, it's an old debate. Is Picasso a great artist, even though he was a crappy human being, or is he simply Pablo-matic, you know? Uh, and and Breton would have leaned, leaned toward the latter view. In fact, he broke with Picasso, among many other close friends, uh, you know, on those grounds, uh, because he felt, uh, in Picasso's case, you know, he felt that their attitudes and actions were unworthy. Uh, in Picasso's case, because Picasso had sided with the Stalinists, and, you know, very openly so. And after the war, they met, and Breton said, I can't be your friend anymore, basically. Um you know, the surrealists indulge in a lot of, of cancel culture. Uh, and really from day one, this was part of their this was part of their ethos, you know, um, in, in again, during the Dada period, which was, uh, you know, the precursor to surrealism, they staged this mock trial of um, uh, a novelist named Maurice Barres, who's you know pretty much forgotten today, but at the time he was hugely popular and hugely popular, especially among young people, because uh, before World War One, he had espoused what seemed like these sort of anarchist principles that they all found very thrilling. Well, during the war, Barras did this kind of about face and became a super patriot and, you know, very bellicose and, you know, pro-France and kill the Germans and all this stuff. Um, you know, the surrealists were, they felt betrayed. Uh, you know, who was this person who had been sort of our, our moral guide who's, who's doing this? So they, they staged this mock trial uh, during which Breton, who was the judge, uh, called for the death sentence. Of course, you know, obviously, Barras wasn't there, couldn't have cared less. So, you know, it only went so far, but you sort of see the vehemence of the, you know, of the sense of betrayal there. Uh, you know, they put out this this broadside a few years later that was called Read, Don't Read, which was, you know, a list of, of people that you could, you know, authors who were okay to read and authors that you absolutely had to stay away from. You know, it's not that different from what goes on in social media today. Obviously, there there is true evil and one must resist it. But I think you have to be, you know, too much intolerance can end up also impoverishing your you and your world. Uh, you know, life is more complex than that. And so it makes for entertaining reading, you know, to have those sort of extreme positions. But um, Breton's statement about poetry emanating, emanating from the lives of people is, you know, is, is maybe more problematic than, than, he, than he realized. Yeah. <clears throat> Complexity is hard to hold sometimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, returning to the broader spirit of surrealism, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about our access points to it. You write in the book about um, some of the art making in more recent times that can be seen as existing on a continuum with surrealism. Um, Monty Python, you mentioned, you mentioned the lyrics of Bob Dylan. 
um, and what we can get out of looking at something like that and actually thinking about surrealism, not just sort of saying to ourselves, whoa, that's surreal, uh, versus, you know, going to a museum and seeking out a Magritte painting and standing in front of it for an hour and thinking about what he was what he was doing. As we said earlier on, it, it really is about a spirit more than a style. You know, I would say in general, wherever there is a spirit of revolt or, you know, refusal or rebellion. I mean, that's where the spirit of surrealism lies. So it could be in, you know, a Dylan lyric or or in the in the, you know, the antics of Monty Python, uh, you know, the sort of the anarchistic humor of it. Um but, you know, I think it's not just about rebellion. I think again, coupled with never losing your independence of thought. Uh, I think this is one of the things that really distinguishes them above many of the of their compatriots and many of their 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 um, colleagues of the time. So you know, never lose your independence of thought, even if it runs counter to prevailing currents, even if it runs counter to your side, quote unquote. Uh, you know, even if your side believes that it's a side of revolution and revolt, you have to keep a critical eye uh, and be careful not to, you know, not to, to fall into, um, you know, team or tribal thinking. Um, you know, orthodoxies are very insidious, you know, they can occur anywhere and you don't always notice that you've become part of it. Um, and I think this is one of the lessons from surrealism that we can really take away. Uh, the other one is, again, to keep alert to those little kernels of wonder and marvel, uh, you know, even in these these maddening, horrible times. Um Maybe even more so now, you know. Uh, uh, you know, Breton described that feeling of of, of wonder as uh, he said the feeling of a feathery wind brushing across his temples, and I think that that wind can be felt, you know, whether you're standing in a museum staring at a Magritte for an hour, or whether you're on a walk, or in a chance encounter, or you know, you name it, um, it's out there, and it's in you if you're receptive to it. Well, here's where I'd like to wind up. <clears throat> you write in the book about the surrealist invention, re, sorry, reinvention of critical prose that there's contained, quote, a heady mix of personal reminiscence, flight of fancy, scattershot association, delirium and shrewd analogy that it demanded to, quote, be experienced rather than described and that it put, quote, instinct and feeling before the rational exposition of most discursive writing, even at the expense of legibility. And you subsequently add... I'm well aware that the present book is written in precisely the style the surrealists were rebelling against. So my last question is this one. Would you be delighted if someone undertook a fully surrealist or 21st century incarnation of surrealist review of why surrealism matters? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. The challenge has been issued. There you uh, go. The, the gauntlet is, is dropped, right? That's right. We're looking forward to experiencing a surrealist review of the book Why Surrealism Matters by Mark Palazzotti. I also encourage everyone to read this beautifully written book, even if the original Surrealists might not have appreciated its eloquence and crystalline intelligibility. The book is available now in bookstores and online. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at YaleBooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books. <laughs>